couple of reminders this week. Uh, one is, remember that there will be no Awana or normal Wednesday night activities this week. We hope everyone has a good new year. And, and you know, I was thinking this week about the new year, and, and this is the time of the year where all the, the magazines and the newspapers and the publications will come up with all of their kind of best of lists, the best of, of 2019, the best of the decade in this case. And uh, just, it's good, it's good to reflect. It's also good to remember what God's perspective on time is. And, and I, I love some of these verses from Psalm 90. Just listen to this. Psalm 90, verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So, you know, God exists outside of time. He's not ruled by our time. Long stretches of time, you know, a thousand years, hard for us to imagine everything that happens in a thousand years. And yet for God, it's like, it's like a watch in the night. Now on the other side of that, it doesn't mean that God does not value each day and that each day is not a gift because later in the, in the Psalm, it says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So, you know, every day is important to God. Every day is valuable. Uh, just, just good to, to reflect on, on God and, and the fact that he's in control. And no matter what has happened in the past year, no matter what will happen in, in 2020, that that's the kind of God that he is. Uh, so bow our heads and, uh, and thank the Lord before we sing this next song. Father, uh, just, just remind us again this morning of your goodness and your grace. And uh, we just thank you for the opportunity to meet one more time uh, in this year. Uh, just to reflect on on who you are and what you've done and lord we just uh we give we give our trials and our struggles and even our heartaches from the past year uh, we give those over to you and we ask for for you to redeem them to make beauty out of out of the ashes and lord to give us uh, just a, a renewed sense of hope and encouragement as we think about the future the future is firm, it's set, nothing can, can alter your plan. And so God, we just pray that you give us hearts to trust and to rest in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Creekside Church. Yeah, it's good to see some visitors here. Welcome. I uh, hope you all enjoyed your Christmas celebrations this past week. We had a nice little trip up to Marshalltown to spend some time with Jessalyn's grandpa, our, our last surviving grandparent. So uh, we attended a nice traditional Christmas Eve service up there. It was very nice. Um, I'll, I'll disclaim up front that I've been battling a chest cold all week, and uh, by God's grace, I'm here. My voice is held out. So uh, praise God for that. That's an answered prayer. Um, so we're coming up on a new year this week. As Alan mentioned, and not only a new year, but a new decade. Uh, so if in the past you've made some New Year's resolutions and I've had a hard time sticking to it and have been discouraged by that, you've not only got a fresh start on a new year, but a fresh start on a new decade. You can just leave the past 10 years behind you and go forward with some fresh decade resolutions. How about that? Well, I, I would encourage you in this to come up with a Bible reading plan. Uh, in Colossians 3.2, it says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And what better way to do that than to have a plan 
to read the word of God. And then it goes on in verse 16 to says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now wouldn't that be great if each person in our church this next year made it their goal to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly in all wisdom. And whatever we do in word or deed, doing all in the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, technology for its pitfalls has provided some amazing convenience to us that leaves us without excuse in finding and accessing a good Bible plan. You can get on your device or tablet or computer and go to YouVersion or whatever one you like and find a myriad of Bible reading plans. Go through the Bible in a year, go through it in uh, 90 days, do the New Testament, do chronological. There's a lot of different ways to do it. And it's one of our core values here at Creekside Church that, that we would be word-filled in all our ministries. And the only way that's going to happen is if it starts on a personal level, that each individual is in the Word and letting the Word of Christ dwell in them richly. And then as individuals, as we're built up in the Word of God and it's filling our minds and hearts, and as it's our filling the lives of our families, then as a church, we will have, we will have ministries that are Word-filled. And it starts on a personal level. All right. Well, we're, gonna not, we're not done with Christmas yet. You get, we're, we got another Christmas passage for you today. This is Matthew chapter 2. And would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring word back to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you would open our hearts and minds to receive your word this morning, a familiar Christmas story, but Lord... Let it be fresh upon our hearts this morning. Let us learn from you what you would have us to learn. May your spirit guide and direct in each mind and heart here this morning in whatever way you, you please and whatever way you will. To your honor and glory, in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, Steve opened our series on Matthew earlier this month with a chapter from John. 
John chapter 1, but that's a great chapter that ties so well into today's passage. In John chapter 1, you see this theme of light coming into the darkness. And that's what we have here in Matthew chapter 2. You remember in John chapter 1 and verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then in verse 9, that was the light, the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. And the light shines in, um, the light shines in the darkness. He was in the world, sorry. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Clearly, Jesus is the light of the world. He's presented as the light of the world. But the world he came into was full of darkness and evil. And it's really in this passage in Matthew 2, that backdrop of darkness and evil is the context, the only context which really makes sense for this passage that makes sense for a light to come, for Jesus to come, to first see that darkness. Well, in chapter 1, in Matthew chapter 1 that we've gone over the last few weeks, it presented the genealogy, the origins, the beginning of Jesus from both a human standpoint, from Joseph and Mary, but also from the divine standpoint that he was supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 1 really proclaims that Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture that proclaims him as king and he deserves worship and adoration. And then we get to chapter 2 and we see a mix of reactions, not all giving him the worship and adoration he is due. Some respond in anger and with murder and some respond with apathy and indifference. And we'll see all that bared out in our characters this morning, the first one of which is Herod. And I'm going to give each of our characters a descriptive word that starts with an A. And the word for Herod is anger. Man, there's probably not a better word to describe Herod than, ang- than anger. Now, for you history buffs, you might find this interesting that there is more primary evidence for Herod and his activities than there is for Jesus, for Paul, for Caesar Augustus, and for Julius Caesar. And that is because the Jewish historian Josephus wrote a couple of scrolls just on Herod. So we have a lot of primary evidence for Herod. He came into power around 40 BC under Roman authority. He was declared by Octavian and Antony, with the concurrence of the Roman Senate, to be the king of the Jews. But he wasn't Jewish. He was Edomite, so maybe kind of half Jewish. And at the time Christ was born, he had been in power by this time at the Magi coming, about 49 years. So he knew how to keep his power. He was a successful ruler, but he was also a paranoid tyrant. He was ruthless. And just to give you a taste of what Herod was like and what the lengths he went to to maintain his power, listen to this. Once he had his brother-in-law, who was the high priest, drowned. He had his wife killed and then her mother. He had two sons killed. He had other relatives killed. He even made plans for prominent Jews to be rounded up and executed upon his death because he figured no one would mourn for him at his death. But he was determined that there would be mourning at his death. This is how bad Herod is. Caesar Augustus even said he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. How bad is that? As I was trying to think of an illustration of Herod, I, I picture, I don't know if you've seen the movie Return of the King, from the Lord of the Rings series, and 
I'm not going to go into all the Lord of the Rings lore this morning, but there's a character in the kingdom of Gondor who's the steward, and his name is Denethor. And he, he's this, the, the kings have been away for centuries, and in their place have been stewards ruling the kingdom of Gondor, and they're supposed to turn it back over to the kings when they come back into power. And this Denethor is kind of, kind of a ruthless guy. He's kind of a lot like Herod. And uh, when he hears about this ranger from the north who's rising up in the line of the kings to maybe come back to his kingdom as the king, Aragorn, he says with a snarl in his voice, he says, I will not bow to this ranger from the north. And I just kind of picture Herod like this when these magi come in and they, they, they declare that there's a newborn king of the Jews, which should have been great news and joyful news. But I can picture Herod kind of with that snarl saying, I will not bow to this new king of the Jews. You know, there's a, it's just really part of our culture today. It was Herod, you know, he would do anything to rise to the top and stay on top. We see that so much in our culture today, don't we? Uh, it's nowhere more exemplified and magnified than in the political season that we're in, where you have candidates that will do anything, say anything, ethical or not, to rise to the top and stay on the top, right? Uh, kind of reminds me of a game we used to play. Now, you commonly know this game as Monopoly, you know, which in of itself is enough. It, it creates the potential for just disharmony in your families and friendships. You know, you walk away not really liking your best friend, you know, or your son or your wife or whoever, you know. Well, we, we were introduced to a version of Monopoly in high school by this black preacher from Detroit, uh, Dwight Knight, a very godly man. He joined us in some of our ministries back then. He, he called it Monopole. Now, Monopole is like an amped up version of Monopoly, right? This is like two or three times the level of Monopoly. Way more ruthless, merciless than Monopoly. We couldn't even call it a game. It wasn't even a game. I had a few of my friends visit me my freshman year at Emmaus. They drove all the way up to Dubuque, and, and we broke out the monopole. You know, we played it, and by the end of it, two of them were ready to drive right back home. We didn't even like each other anymore, you know. It was that bad. I don't know why we played it. But, you know, that's, that's the kind of spirit in our culture today, too, isn't it? You know, uh, people will, they want to, no matter what effect it has on other people, they will do it, they will say it to get to the top to get where they want to go. And that's Herod. It's a me-first attitude. Doing what I can do to get ahead even at others' expense. He is anger. But the values of Christ is just the opposite of that. Later in this gospel, in Matthew chapter 20, when brothers James and John have their mother go to Jesus and ask him to put them each, on, each side of him on, in his kingdom, in the, in the, you know, in the, in the kingdom. And, and Jesus well, you can imagine, you remember the ten disciples and their reaction? They heard about what James and John and their mother had asked of Jesus. And I like the King James, how it says, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. It's a great way to describe it. They were, they were ticked off. But Jesus called them to himself in verse 25. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The values of Christ are so different from the world, aren't they? You know, in God's economy, he's looking for the person who will be willing to serve, to become like a slave. 
It's the one who put others' interests before their own. That's greatness in God's kingdom. So different from what we see in the world. So anger and hatred characterize Herod. Verse 3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. That's an understatement. He was troubled. You know, he's about 70 at this point. He only has maybe another year left to live. And yet he's so consumed with his power and maintaining that power, he's troubled. And all Jerusalem is troubled with him. He was so upset that these wise men had come, looking for another king of the Jews. He was troubled. And why was Jerusalem troubled with him? Well, they knew what kind of ruler Herod was. And if Herod was troubled, they were troubled because they knew how ruthless Herod could be. And in fact, we see in the very next passage, they had good reason to be troubled, right? We'll see in the next passage in a couple weeks here that he ordered the execution of all male boys under the age of two in a little village nearby. But if, if nothing else, that is the capstone of Herod's cruelty and evil. You know, there is evil in the world. There is darkness in the world. And let's just call it for what it is. There is evil. Today, people call evil good and good evil. Christ's values are seen as intolerance and bigotry and and bad. It's just so opposite. In Judges 17, 6, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's kind of the attitude today, isn't it? Even the so-called family-friendly Hallmark Channel is uh, showing some ads with lesbian weddings this month. I mean, come on. You know, I don't know how many baby boys tragically lost their lives in Bethlehem. Is it a small village? Maybe maybe a couple hundred. I don't know. But just think about this in our day and age. That since 1973, with the Roe v. Wade decision, I had to look this up to see what the current stats were, but there's estimated 60 million abortions in the U.S. since that time. 60 million. That's just staggering. I mean, what we've done just since 1973 in America dwarfs what Herod did. And it's just evil. Dare I say, we are even in a darker time than the days Jesus was born into. People are just so full of anger and hatred today. And anger and hatred specifically toward God. We're not just born indifferent. We're born as God's enemies. And people want to run their lives the way they want to run them. They don't want to be a, they don't like the idea of accountability to a higher being. They reject the idea of submitting to God's will for their lives. They, they will guard their priorities, their values, their morals at any cost. But you know, we're, we're born like this. In Romans 3.10 it says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. And in Romans 5.10, it even tells us what our state is, our natural state with God. He says in Romans 5.10, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Colossians 1 says we were alienated and enemies in our mind by our wicked works. So our natural state is not just kind of like a, oh, just kind of a neutral ambivalence towards God, but we're, we're actually at enmity with God by nature. And that bears out in our culture, doesn't it? Well, Herod 
I want to skip up to verse 7 here for a moment. Herod is also very conniving. Herod made a living off of being conniving. And here we see it again in verses 7 to 8. Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Now, this isn't in front of the chief priests and scribes. This is just a secret meeting with Herod calling in the Magi. And he wanted to find out when that star appeared because he wanted to know how old the child was. And he wanted the Magi to go find the child. So under the pretense that he was wanting to come and worship him also, but we actually know what was on his mind and heart because in verse 16 we see the execution of the males under two in Bethlehem. Herod, full of anger. And that's one of the main reactions to God today, as one of anger and open rejection and rebellion against God. We also see some other characters here mentioned, the chief priests and scribes. And while at this point anyway, aren't characterized by anger necessarily, they are later on, and Jesus' trials later in his life, but at this point, the word that characterizes the chief priests and scribes is apathy. Apathy means lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern, which is such a fitting description for them. In verse 4, it says, When Herod had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He knew that there was some kind of Jewish prophecy or something of where, where this Messiah was going to be born. And so he calls in the religious experts, the leaders, the, the religious teachers of the law, and he asks them, and they right away tell him, they, they know this, this is like on the tip of their tongues. This says, oh, it's, it's Micah 5 too. In Bethlehem, there's going to be a ruler coming out of Bethlehem. And then they also say, oh, in 2 Samuel 5 too, he's going to shepherd my people Israel. You know, that, that, in 2 Samuel 5 too, that was about David finally becoming the king over all of Israel. But they took that as a prophecy for the future as well, that there would be a future ruler and Messiah to rise up to shepherd the people Israel. So Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2, they had these prophecies right on the tip of their tongue, ready to go for Herod, and that's what Herod needed. He wanted to know where they were. But I would say that these chief priests and scribes are false wise men. False wise men. These were people who were knowledgeable in the scriptures. They should have been wise. They knew very well of the prophecies of the coming Messiah. In fact, some scholars have said there are 333 Old Testament prophecies of Christ, and a hundred of them have been fulfilled at his first coming. They knew all of those prophecies. They likely would have had the whole Old Testament scriptures memorized. And they, they knew the prophecies, but even though they were knowledgeable about them, and they had just heard these magi, these noblemen from the east, proclaim to them that there was a newborn king of the Jews, they rejected that. They just that didn't stir them up. Not even enough to go down five or six miles south down to Bethlehem to see if it were true. You think this news from the Magi, these noblemen coming in, would have piqued their interest enough to at least go five to six miles south and find out if it were true or not. But no. They just, they're apathetic. But people today are just like that too, huh? I mean, many people have gone to church at one point or another of some kind of context uh, they might know the Sunday school stories. They may have heard of Christ and his birth and death and resurrection. 
They may have heard that he is the Savior, but they don't see their need for a Savior. They don't, they don't understand their need for salvation, and they're just apathetic to it. I'd say, by and large, that's the characterization of the people in America today. This indifference. And I thought, too, this past week, I was thinking about this, and as the Magi came in, I thought, wouldn't this, why wouldn't they at least consider what they had to say? And part of it may have been that they were the Jewish experts and religious leaders of the day. Who were these Gentile noblemen to come into our capital city and tell us that we have a newborn king of the Jews? You know? <laughs> yeah, right. You know? If, if there's a newborn king of the Jews, we're going to be the ones to notice it and know it and proclaim it. Not you guys. And so they're just apathetic to what the Gentile noblemen have to say. That's what I, I think about that. But now we have the wise men. And better called the magi. Um, magi is, a, is an untranslatable word that just means magi. They're actually a priestly tribe of Medes that goes back centuries. And the word to describe the magi is astute. Astute means an ability to notice and understand things clearly. That describes them pretty well. Going back up to verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, the old wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. You know, it says, Behold. They, they, were, they stirred up a lot of attention with this saying. And they were, probably came in saying it all over Jerusalem. Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We followed a star and we've come to worship him. They probably came into Jerusalem assuming that everyone knew about it and knew where the newborn king was. And to their surprise, no one did. No one was aware of it or worshiping the newborn king yet. Storytellers, now I'm going to mess up your nativity scenes a little bit here. <laughs> Storytellers say that the Magi were three kings, Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior, and that one of them was an Ethiopian. Um, that's all a myth. We, we sometimes think there's three because they gave three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But there was actually probably a whole entourage um, you know, they likely would have had a, some kind of a security detail, too, to enter into foreign territory like that and to protect their valuable gifts. So likely it was an entourage, and it was a big deal when they came into town. Um, they probably weren't kings either, sorry. We sometimes get that from the hymn, We Three Kings of Orient are. But they, but they were kingmakers. And in Persia, they were ones who would... Um, train up the, the kings and it is said that no one became a king without learning the ways of the magi and with, with the magi's blessing so uh, they are like i said a priestly cast of medes going back many centuries and they likely rode a persian steeds and not camels um okay if we really want to mess up the nativity scene even a little bit more we could add a couple roman soldiers to it you know, because, the, no. That just wouldn't seem Christmassy, would it? Okay, but who were these magi? Now, we can't know exactly everything about them with precision, but there are some educated statements that we can make about them based on other places we see them appear in Scripture. 
We see the Magi mentioned several times in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, there was a saying, according to the law of the Medes and Persians. That was their law, the Magi's law. We have some words that come from Magi in our language, magic, magician, magistrate, right? Um, And their beliefs were kind of a mix of astronomy and astrology. They looked at the stars, they tried to interpret meanings out of them, and uh, that, that was their religion. They were knowledgeable, they were the elite, they were experts in legal matters and astronomy and medicine and philosophy and science. And in Daniel's time, we see a time when um, the Jews, the last of the Jews had been captured and taken away up into Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And there was a young man, maybe about age 17 or so, Daniel, and after a few years of training, they were um, to serve the king in the court. But the, the, God sent King Nebuchadnezzar a troubling dream. And he called all his wise men in. His, he called in the Magi in. And no one could interpret the king's dream. And the king ordered the execution of all the Magi and all the wise men, soothsayers, etc. But then there was Daniel, God's man. And Daniel came in and interpreted the king's dream. And Daniel was given a promotion to a great place of prominence where he was ruler over all of Babylon under the king. And it says that he was made chief of the Magi in verse 48, chapter 1. He was made chief of the Magi. And he had pleaded with the king for the king to rescind the order for their execution, and the king did. So imagine how respected Daniel would have been among the Magi. He was their chief. He had spared their lives. And over the years to come, Daniel undoubtedly would have taught them about all the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah and of Jewish history and culture and helped them understand that. And even at the time when the Jews were allowed to come back to their homeland, to Israel, many Jews decided to stay in Babylon and they, and they settled there. They, they were settled there. And so this kind of maybe gives us an idea of where the Magi's knowledge and understanding of the Old Testament prophecies of a Jewish Messiah came from from Daniel's time. And so they were on the lookout for it. There's even a specific prophecy from Balaam in Numbers 24, 17 that says a star will rise and a ruler will come out of Israel. So maybe that's where they got the idea. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Maybe that's where they got that idea of a star. Well, we go to verse 9 here. And... After the secret meeting with Herod, when Herod instructs them to go find the child so that he may worship them too, they heard the king, it says, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Here we see in the Magi as they head out from Jerusalem to find the young child, the reappearance of that star that they had seen from the east. They first saw it when they were out east in Persia, and now many months, perhaps a year, year and a half later, here they see it reappear again. And not just an ordinary star, but it guides them directly to Bethlehem and directly over the house. Now, not the manger scene, not in the stable anymore. This is a house now. So 
We might have to update our nativity scenes a little. <laughs> but the star guides them directly there. Now, there's been a lot of explanations suggested, offered for this star. Uh, some have suggested, like Johannes Kepler, that it was a convergence of Jupiter and Saturn about that time in history and that would have created a special light. Other people said it was a comet or other um, just natural phenomenon of the heavens. But, you know, when you're driving at night and you see the moon and you've been driving for a while at night and you see the moon in a different position, you know it's because the moon is orbiting the earth, the earth is spinning on its axis, and it has that appearance of moving around, right? But never have I seen the moon lead me directly back home to my house and shine on my house, you know? This is not some kind of natural phenomenon here. And the light shines directly on the house. I think it's best understood as a supernatural light from heaven, perhaps an angel. Perhaps the original light they saw from the east was on the night of Jesus' birth when the heavens lit up with the glory of God and the angels. In any, in any case, maybe this is the Shekinah glory of God. You know, it's not, it wouldn't be unthinkable. You think back in Exodus 14 when the Lord led the Israelites and Moses with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And right before they crossed the Red Sea, do you remember when the, Israel, the Egyptians were closing in on them and God wasn't ready to open the sea yet, but they were closing in on them, what he did? He became like a wall between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And to the Israelites, it was like day. And to the Egyptians, it was like night. You know, I was thinking about this, that if that bright light shone on this house in Bethlehem in such a special way like it did, wouldn't everybody in Bethlehem just flock to this house? Maybe God only allowed the Magi to see this supernatural light. Like he allowed the Israelites to see daylight while the Egyptians saw night. Well, it's spectacular in either way. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. They had studied the stars. They had looked for its meanings. They had this promise they'd been holding on to for centuries about a Jewish Messiah. Um, you know, Rome was the big empire at that time. And the Persians were kind of looking for a new king themselves. These kingmakers, they were looking for a great ruler to step up themselves. And here we have confirmation of their greatest hopes. They rejoice with exceedingly great joy. All their hopes and beliefs are confirmed in seeing this light. When they came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. The word we can describe the Magi best with here is adoration. Adoration. And what a contrast between the Jews who knew the scriptures, who had been waiting for centuries for their Messiah to come, and yet they miss Christmas. And why? Because of indifference, because of an apathetic heart. But here are these Gentile Persian Magi who went to a lot of trouble to come hundreds of miles with, with great expense are the ones to discover the newborn king of the Jews and worship him. What a contrast. God's grace is evident in this story, isn't it? And his grace is wide. Here are these Gentile noblemen coming to worship the newborn king of the Jews while Israel is kind of like in a slumber about it. <laughs> in heaven, we know from the book of Revelation, it says there will be people in heaven from every nation and tribe and tongue and people group there. You know, you come here on a Wednesday night in Awana, you get a little taste of that. We've got kind of a mixed group here. 
I think I might say our white Caucasian group is maybe in the minority even in our Awana ministry. It's wonderful. God's grace is wide. Now look at the gifts they give. There's a few purposes of the gifts. The primary purpose, obviously, is just for worship and adoration of the newborn king. These are valuable, costly gifts, and they present them as worship and adoration. God's secondary purpose in giving them these expensive gifts is that they're going to have to flee the country pretty soon to escape Herod's wrath. When he figures out that the Magi have tricked him and aren't going to come back and tell him where the child is and he orders the execution of the children, they're going to have to get out of here and they're going to go to Egypt. And so these gifts are going to finance that trip to Egypt and help them live in Egypt until they can get back. And then there's some spiritual purposes. And Magi probably didn't have the financing the trip to Egypt thing in mind and they probably didn't have these spiritual purposes in mind. But we, through the lens of having the whole of the scriptures, can look at them in a, in a unique way. That gold symbolizes the kingliness of Jesus. It's a gift fit for a king. You remember back in Solomon's time, there was the temple that was laid with gold everywhere. There was just gold, gold, gold everywhere. It was the king's gift. And then we have frankincense, an expensive fragrance used for, in Old Testament offerings, maybe sometimes in processions and weddings if they could afford it. And it was a priestly offering to God. It reminds me that Jesus is our great high priest who offered himself to God as a fragrant offering, as our sacrifice. And then we have myrrh, which is kind of an interesting gift um, because it was used in the embalming of the dead. We see it in John 19 when Nicodemus um, brought 100 pounds of myrrh and other spices to embalm the body of Jesus. And frankincense and myrrh were cut out of certain kinds of trees and they, they were costly. They were valuable gifts. And they didn't have this in mind, I'm sure, but we look at it now and see at this gift symbolizing in a spiritual way that Jesus was one day going to die on the cross for our sins and be buried and raised on the third day. Generous gifts given out of the overflow of adoring and grateful hearts. And then the Magi in verse 12, they were divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod and departed for their own country another way. We ask ourselves, where, who are we in this story? Are we like Herod, who's full of anger and bitterness and just reject God? We know a lot of people like that. And, or are we like the chief priests and scribes? Maybe we're apathetic, have little concern for the things of God. We might know the scriptures. We've been to Sunday school, grew up in the church perhaps. But when it comes down to it, I have other priorities, other values in my life that I want to pursue. A lot of people are like that. Or are we like the Magi, genuine seekers of God who hold on to the promises of God, that he would send a Savior, a Messiah, to pay the penalty for our sins, that we might be redeemed to God and have everlasting life. In the Magi, it's interesting, we, we, we can be in... I would say we should be like the Magi. The Magi were looking forward to the coming of Christ. They were looking into the prophecies and the promises of God about the coming of Christ. We too 
should be looking forward to the promises and looking into the prophecies of the coming of Christ. There are still over 200 prophecies about the coming of Christ that have not yet been fulfilled. Should we not be looking into these prophecies and with great expectation as the Magi had be looking forward to the second return of Christ? We should. It's been said that there is up to 25% of Scripture is prophecy. If we're not men and women and children of the Word of God, we're not going to have a great expectation for the coming of Christ. And yet we should. We should be looking forward to it as much as the Magi were. They rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Shouldn't that be our joy in life? Looking forward to the coming and return of Jesus Christ, our Savior? Well, we're transitioning into a time of communion here and that gift of myrrh and thinking about that. And um, Jesus was born to die. He was born to die. That precious baby in the manger had a purpose, had a plan for his life. And while men on earth were in darkness and evil and men on earth rejected God in anger or were indifferent or apathetic to him, he was that light that came into the darkness. That light that came in to be our Savior. And while people rejected him, he lovingly came and sacrificed his life that we might have forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. I mean, when he was on the cross, God the Father heaped all of that darkness and evil of our sins on his own Son that we might be redeemed to God. How wonderful that is. God's grace is amazing. And we take the bread symbolizing the body of Christ. And we take the cup symbolizing the blood of Christ. And, and may it be with exceedingly great joy like the Magi had. Thank you, Lord. Let's just pray. Thank you, Lord, for this passage of Scripture, which is hopefully now on our hearts in a fresher way. And it draws us to Christ, who is the Savior, who is the light of the world, the light come into the darkness, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And we thank you that through him we can have eternal life and have our sins forgiven. Uh, thank you, Lord, that this grace goes out to all the world, to people of all nations and tribes and tongues. Lord, we thank you that we have people of all nations here in our community. Help us to be concerned for them and take the gospel to them. I just pray, Lord, as we examine our hearts before we take the bread and the cup, that if there's unconfessed sin, if there's something in our hearts and lives that are not right with you, that we would confess that and get right with you and then take and eat in remembrance of Jesus. And Lord, um, put a burden on our hearts for the people of this world, people who are full of anger, people who are just apathetic and indifferent to the things of God. Lord, may we not only be like the Magi who are e eagerly seeking you, but may we also be your ambassadors and go to great lengths to proclaim that there is a king, a king who can redeem them from their sins. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.